Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Have you ever dreamed of living in an actual utopia? It sounds too good to be true, right? Well, it turns out it's closer than you'd think. Serenby is the world-renowned pioneering self-sustaining community about 40 minutes south of Atlanta. And it has edible trees, a professional farm, a focus on art, education, and a lifestyle steeped in wellness. And today's guest, I got to speak to the sought-after CEO and founder of Serenby, Steve Nigren. One thing that stood out is the amount of aha moments I had during this chat of what we can do in our own homes that can instantly improve our health, our mental wellness, prevent cancer, and promote happiness. It's like the ultimate, right? For instance, in the Serenbeek community, there are about 100 kids that live there and not one of them has asthma. You've got to hear this interview. Well, you're still here, right? So we're going to get to it uh, in just a minute. But Steve is clearly a person who is committed to the purpose of marrying old-fashioned values and community, but without sacrificing modern city life and inspiring other people to elevate the importance of nature in our own communities. Um, And it's really sparked a movement. And it got me thinking about the people that I love that struggle with their health, struggle with depression, struggle with a lack of motivation, or even a lack of self-esteem. And it made me wonder if all of it is connected to our environment. I mean, what if we used ourselves as guinea pigs and made some simple changes or even really big changes and it improved our overall conditions? What if it improved the quality of life for our aging parents? Or what if it reversed medical conditions? What if it could help the earth? These are really, really big questions that I've been really thinking about since uh, since this conversation. And I think that Steve is definitely onto something. They are all connected. And as I looked around my home and noticed how much unnecessary plastic and packaging is used for any deliveries that come to my door or you know, wonder if we change the air filters enough or do we even get out outside enough in the winter? And before we get into my chat with Steve, I would love to hear from you. If this is your first time listening, thank you and welcome. If you've come back, welcome back. I'm so glad you did. And I would love to hear from you. What has moved you? Are you inspired to do something different or Think about something in a new way from these conversations. What are you curious about? Who should I interview next? What suggestions do you have for me? All of these comments help me make a better show for you. So text me at 470-242-6311 and let's connect. And of course, please subscribe, rate, and review my show in Apple Podcasts. It really is so nice to know you're listening and it helps others find me too. Okay, let's talk to Steve. All right, so we are here today with Steve Nigren. He is the CEO and founder of the Serenby community. And I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, but it is a a really inventive, self-sustaining, agra, agra, what is it? Agrahood. Agrahood. <laughs> Agrahood. And it is amazing, about 40 minutes south of Atlanta. And so um, I'm so thankful for you sitting down with me. So my podcast is called Little Left of Center, and I interview culture changers. And I couldn't think of anyone better than you. Uh, as far as culture changing, you really have started a movement. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. How did this idea come to you? Well, first of all, welcome to Serenby, and thank, thank you, you for the interest in what we're doing here. Thank you, thank you. Well, this is is all really a reaction to urban sprawl and what we didn't want to have. In the 70s, 80s, 90s, I am the hospitality guy in Atlanta and, yeah, and, and other tour, cities. Yeah? That's right, and we, we brought... Um, Fine dining in a casual atmosphere to Atlanta yeah. uh, in the 70s. And and it was a movement that was happening in America, and we really were the leaders in the Southeast on this. And so I built that to a company that was uh, in eight states. 
and then had an opportunity to sell it and stepped off the treadmill. Uh, we lived in Ansley Park at the time. Yeah, and a beautiful uh, community in in downtown Atlanta. Yes, and and, yeah. and where we could walk um, uh, two blocks one way to Symphony Hall, High Museum, and all the restaurants along Peachtree. Yeah, and the other side we could walk to Piedmont Park and the Botanical Garden. So it was the ideal place. In fact, we'd planted gardens for our small children to be married in one day. Mm. And so we we weren't looking for any lifestyle changes. Yeah. Uh, but we bought this farm on a, a weekend drive um, uh, out of a whim, really. And I decided Amazing. it was a good investment because it was so close to Atlanta and it was this beautiful countryside. Was it cheap as, as all get out or was By it By considering, yes, because yeah. it, 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 there were no real roads here. So this wasn't on the way to anywhere. Right. And most of metropolitan Atlanta was not aware of this beautiful rolling countryside mm-hmm. that had been forgotten in 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 the urban sprawl everything went north and then west and east uh and even south uh east but not west because there were no roads to anything really major here um and um so this was just sort of a whim we rented the old historic uh farmhouse out and uh, fixed a shack in the back in case we ever wanted to spend the night. You know, I, I, I imagine getting, you know, a, a, a horse and a couple things for the kids, and we'd just come out and it'd be fun. Was it a second home? It was a second home Yeah. Uh, in, in 91 when we purchased it. And uh, to my amazement, everyone was anxious to leave that wonderful city house with the pool and the media room and uh, matching Barbie cars for all the three girls, you know, <laughs> battery operated, you know, it, we, 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 we thought we had the ideal world. Yeah. And so it was my surprise that everyone wanted to come here to the country where we stayed in the shack, uh, and connected to nature. And so doing that for three years was my value shift. And so I had an opportunity to sell the company, sold the big house, retired from most of the boards. And, uh, we had a wonderful seven years in retirement. But in that seventh year, um, we became concerned about urban sprawl uh, because Atlanta was running out of available land this close to the mm-hmm. city, and there were some development threats. And I started buying land, and at 900 acres, I realized I couldn't keep buying land to protect us. And 900 acres in the path of urban sprawl really doesn't protect you from anything. Uh, anyone who's been in metro Atlanta uh, for the last several years, understands how fast uh, that train can uh, can yes. come. Yes, and so this was really a reaction as to what could we do. Uh, first, thinking about how can we be a model to do it differently, um, and then bringing five hundred landowners to actually regulate. Uh, the zoning on 40,000 acres. Wow. How did you find 5,000 5, landowners? 500. 500. That owned 40,000 acres. So this was the southern tip of Fulton County that was not zoned. And so it was still agriculturally zoned, but that's what happens in metropolitan Atlanta. Yeah. And so today we have what's called the Chattahoochee Hill Country Alliance, and that's 65,000 acres in four counties. Here we're right in the corner of Fulton, Caleta, Carroll, and Douglas. And um, this is a green space and, and uh, path with 30 miles of the Chattahoochee, run, uh, Chattahoochee River running down through it. Um, and we are the first to develop under these regulations. Uh, we now, 40,000 of it in the two counties were allowed to become our own city of Chat Hills. We're in, 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 I think, the fifth geographic largest city in the state, but our population's in the bottom 2%, yeah. I think. So that, you know, it, how did it, you even know where to start developing? Like, how did you, well, how did I was, you, you know, this I, idea? as I look back, um, uh, of course, my first restaurant was in Midtown in the 70s when that was trash. Um, and then uh, in the early 80s, I became head of the Midtown Alliance. And then uh, thanks to the Woodruff Foundation, and we brought in uh, Tony Nielsen out of Boston and really looked at the rezoning for metropolitan Atlanta mm-hmm. or Midtown Atlanta. And so you look at what's happened to Midtown today from the zoning that was put into the place in, in, in the late 80s. So, so that's why it, it, it's one of the largest zoning plans in metro atlanta so i realized um 
that that was really my training ground when I saw what was in front of me to bring these landowners together of diverse pro-development, pro-preservation. Uh, it was very similar to what we did in a very urban area of Midtown Atlanta. And so that was my my uh, roadmap. Did you find any resistance at that point? Or was it such a green space that you were able to kind of do what you want? Well, the important thing to understand is I didn't come with a plan that I asked them to either like or yeah. not like. Uh, we came in and said, okay, what what do we want the future to be like? So this started with neighborhood coffees uh, of both small and large, land, large landowners. Uh, we divided people into groups uh, of, of equal, uh, similar size property. Uh, and, and it's a wonderful journey on how you can bring a coalition to people that normally are fighting in all these zoning battles that you hear about. Mm. Uh, of course, we started with skepticism. What's this going to be about? Uh, but we were able to turn uh, the majority of the landowners. Uh, by the time we took this forward, 80% were paying dues into the organization to move this forward from from all extremes. And we've come up with a plan where the pro-development, which is really uh, economic value, mm. uh, realize they can make more money than they would have. And the preservationists realize we're going to preserve 70% of this land, and yet we'll put 20% more housing in the 30%, by creating a dense model. Wow. Uh, the countryside of England was our model because after World War II, they couldn't afford urban sprawl. The island was only so big. Um, and so that was our, our, our real model. Now, it was quite a trick bringing uh, English land law to a property rights southern state. Yeah. But we worked How with... How do you do all of this? <laughs> we, 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 we worked with University of Georgia, Texas A&M, Georgia Tech. And so this was really an academic process. Most of the people were in the professional planning thought we were nuts and this didn't make sense. Uh, but you really look at what we've created here. It's it's how we developed 80 years ago or more. You know, it was dense villages before the automobile uh, allowed us mm -hmm. to, to sprawl everywhere. And so this is why what you see is very European or very reminiscent of how people over 50 grew up, chances are. Yeah. It's funny when you talk about, you know, you hear about food being organic, and it used to be just food. <laughs> and now everything is processed. But here, isn't it something like 70% of the plants or trees are edible? But that's, well, I think you're referring to our common area. So in Grange, yeah. for instance, uh, rather than a lot of ornamentals, uh, we um, uh, have 70% is all edible landscaping. So at every crosswalk, there's a, a blueberry bushes. Uh, there's banks of figs. Um, the kids all know that when the service berries come out, that that's the beginning of the spring season. And there's excitement as that is, is, is the um, buds start coming on the blueberry bushes and then the apple trees. And, and it's, it, it's a natural uh, understanding of the seasonality of our foods. And, of course, we, we bring the farms right up. Uh, to the houses you mentioned, agrihood. Well, we were really explain what an agrihood is. Well, we were the. Uh, I'm not sure what I think about that name, but it <laughs> it, it, it actually uh, sprung from a New York Times reporter doing a story on Serenby and the fact that we were included farms. Um, while uh, a couple developments had had farms in a master plan, such as Prairie Crossing outside Chicago, it was off in the corner. And we were really the first to bring it right up to uh, the edge of the houses. Um, th there was a perception that farms were smelly and dirty and not something you wanted to live next to. And so we really led that effort. And now farms are seen as the future uh, uh, amenity as golf courses were back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, that's the thing that there's no golf course here. People move here because of the living, because of the wellness, because of the food being sourced here, because of the farming that's sourced here. That's right. I want to hear more about about what what have you seen? I mean, you've been on this property for 20 years now? 30 Two, three years. Wow. And there are now, people now, that Sarah have lived here. Now, hasn't been created that long, but that's how long we have yeah. lived here. But the people that live on this property that are residents, what kind of health benefits have they seen from choosing to live on a self-sustaining, pioneering 
community like Serenby. Well, we're reaching this year is our 15th year anniversary of people actually moving here uh, into the community. And we started as a community really looking at the environmental aspects. So this is why we do not allow lawns. Because to have a beautiful lawn, you have to chemicalize it. Mm. And I realized uh, that was not uh, an environmental thing. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the way we've saved the trees, 70% saved. So these all started out as environmental principles. And now that 15 years later, it's all the health benefits come from the same thing. So environment and health are very tied together. So over 100 children here, no asthma. Uh, wow. Uh, the people have reported to me they've gotten rid of their antidepressants, mm. um, and now there's real medical proof that connection to nature does affect your mental attitude uh, and connecting to one another. Uh, and I don't know if you notice, people are waving to one another, they're mm. smiling. They're, you, you can it seems so old-fashioned in such a really beautiful way. That's right. And... and um, it's some of that old-fashioned connection to nature and connection to each other that does affect our mental health. And our mental health now, it's, it's, it's documented, affects our physical health in some of the main diseases. And yet we have been building places over the last five decades that remove us from both nature and each other. Mm. So that's... Uh, so this is is really basically how the built environment is causing some of our health problems that we no have doubt. today. Yeah, uh, we we have a lot of regulations so that people can park near their their back door, near the stores or whatever they're going to. We're 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 we're, we're obsessed with the convenience for the automobile, and no wonder we have obesity. Mm-hmm. We uh, are not worried or even aware of where our food is grown and you know it should be regional local yes organic is it has, is a tag that has really come on what was a very natural thing mm-hmm. 50 60 years ago um, uh, and you know for the first time ever we have obesity and malnutrition in the same body so there's very so, something very wrong with what we're calling food uh, and wh- how we're trying to nourish people. So here's what I'm wondering. This is very in vogue now. I think people are starting to figure out the connection between the food and the environment. I think because there are so many environmental catastrophes that are happening outside our door and people's sicknesses are getting worse and worse and chronic diseases. How did you have this foresight 20 years ago or 30 years ago? How did you, it's very hard to go against the grain, you know, but it sounds like you have some type of vision. How did you know? This. I have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this. Where where did you feel this in your body? Well, I think there is a lot to be said about following your heart or you know in your gut. And I believe that these organs are actually thinking functions. And the mind is set up to organize. And we have gotten in Western society the idea that we should be led by the mind. And that's not so. And if you find a lot of people that are out front on any concept in any area, it's because they had that gut feeling or they followed their heart on what they wanted to do. Uh, Our our mind is is far too organized. It won't let us go out Mm -hmm. in front that way. And so I'm one of those people who have always sensed things and been willing to follow my senses rather than what conventional wisdom uh, tells us. I did that with the restaurants. We, we, we were the leaders in going into places like Midtown when Pindown was no, no place. We were the first liquor license in Roswell, uh, first table service restaurant in Decatur. Uh, we were part of the Pennsylvania Development Authority uh, renovation of Pennsylvania Avenue in the 80s between the White House and the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, downtown Pennsylvania. So we were really uh, willing to take those, those those gutsy moves just because it seemed right. And those are all places that are fabulous today. You have won awards for this. You are world-renowned for what you've done in this community. And I think it has sparked um, 
an inspiration to be able to duplicate this. How do you replicate this beyond these walls? Because it's it's very expensive to live here. So some of the critiques are, you know, I can't, it sounds great. I can go visit, you know, there are yoga retreats, there's ways to do that. There's an inn that I could stay on, but I can't afford to live there. So you've touched on two things that I'd yeah. like to both uh, address both of them separately. Yeah. So first, let's talk about uh, how do you replicate this? And the important thing, it is isn't. It is not about the granite curves, the custom uh, streetlights, uh, the incredible uh, physical things that you see here. It's really the principles uh, that you you see. Um, you know, when we started, uh, everyone thought I was crazy, um, and, and at times I did too. But I had, <laughs> I had crossed through that pa- threshold of passion that I knew we had to do it because yeah. I, uh, I suddenly realized that uh, no one was doing this. As I searched for somebody to help me, and I, I couldn't believe it, and I realized it had to be done. Mm. Um, and so we just uh, were busy doing because anyone I talked to about said, "Uh huh, sure." Uh, but we found out the market was ready. People were showing up to buy it, even though the financial community and the real estate community thought we were just nuts. You had pre-sold a lot before it even we, broke ground, right? We, we, we did, but 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 that that was strictly one-on-one people that had heard about it, knew about it, and it, it started selling out. So I started very, very slowly. And then, of course, the recession hit, and, and that was difficult for us as long as everyone else. But uh, we're some of the few people our size that remained alive. And during the recession then, uh, or after the recession, there were a lot of uh, analysts that realized walking communities and environmental communities were some of the first to step out of the recession. So suddenly there was a lot of interest in places like Serenby. What were we about? What were the principles? Why were buyers interested in this? And uh, that's when I realized that many people were putting us in boxes, uh, whether it was a new urbanist, environmentalist, uh, agri-hoods, and we're all of that. Uh, The Urban Land Institute, which is the granddaddy of all developers, uh, they published a book on the 10 top environmental communities. We're one of those 10. They also have a pamphlet on the 10 top dense or new urbanist communities, and we're also there. We're the only one in both. And now they have a whole pamphlet and, and teaching about uh, bringing agriculture in, and and we led that effort, and we're the only one in in that in in all three, um, and so uh, I thought, well, who are we? What are the principles? And I realized that it's really following the biophilic principles. What is bio? I meant to ask you, what is biophilic? Mean? So it's it's um, it's great if, if if any of your listeners come to visit, uh, find the uh, Halsa restaurant, and we've created a room next door to really educate people on what biophilia so uh, cool. movement is. <laughs> uh, the the term biophilia was popularized by E. O. Wilson, um, and uh, then uh, Yale has done a lot of work. Uh, Stephen Kellert out of uh, Yale and uh, Tim Beatley out of the University of Virginia. Uh, and it, it, I realized that I had to deal with about 13 silos that I have identified, both in public perception and policy. Uh, because 50% of what you see here at Serenby was not allowed when we started in 2002-03. Who was governing it, though? Well, these are local zoning codes. It's yeah. Federal Stormwater, uh, uh, Environmental mm-hmm. Protection Division. There's We have so many layers of regulations, and they are layered on decade after decade without really understanding why sometimes something happens in a regulation and then we might put another regulation on 20 years later but we haven't removed the earlier one and and a lot of these regulatory boards are now in such silos they don't understand even the unintended consequence that another entity has within the division Mm -hmm. and so this is what we started running up against uh, is all this. So so we've identified, and you'll see a big board, and, and, and uh, we can get you a, a picture of it if you, if you put on, but it's, it, it's those various silos that we brought all together. And so it's just like 
so many things that happened naturally 50, 80 years ago, we didn't have to identify them. It's become societal, just like you identified food. It was just local good food. Yeah. Now we've tagged it as organics. Different, right. You know, uh, do we say that's organics versus chemicalized food? I mean, that's that, that's It'd sort of probably be better from a psychosomatic perspective. <laughs> that's what it a should psychology be. Psychology perspective, right? Yeah. We should say <laughs> we're mm-hmm. having to identify good food versus what we've turned food into or what we call food. So uh, it's just a lot of those things. Um, this is really a a movement, I believe, that mm-hmm. we have been part of from the built environment. People are doing it in other ways, and now working with Tim Beatley of the University of Virginia. Uh, we host the Biophilic Summit, and these are leaders of both educators and policymakers, so planners of cities, uh, MIT, Harvard, Yale, they all come now, uh, and some big planners, uh, uh, head of Google campuses, for instance, that just come on our board. Uh, and the, every spring, you can uh, go on our webpage, it's the Biophilic Summit, uh, and uh, people are coming from all over. We've also, in the fall now, we have Nigran Placemaking. We're planning, I think, our seventh conference. And this is geared for developers to really address what these principles are. So if you want to do it, uh, you can bring your local legislators, your, your city council people, uh, or your bankers. Uh, and many times we've had some local governments bring developers to show them this is what they want in their community, something more like this. So we're now a good model that, that can be used to show this makes economic sense, it's mm. quality of life, it's health, it's a lot of these things that we're searching for today, and we're now a model that makes that happen. And uh, 40% of the people that come to this conference are outside the United States. So wow. this is a wow, that's, this is that's actually really a global insane. concern. It isn't just in the United States. Um, and then we'll touch on the affordability as well. So that's a good question. So you see... Um, when we started, that was part of the original plan to have affordable housing, right? Well, uh, not I, subsidized, I, but I, like I, affordable I, I number price one price. was looking at, at, at environmental. Yeah, and I found when I talked about the environmental aspects, people say, "Oh, are you going to be one of those eco villages with straw bale houses and imagining the earth?" And you know, there, I, I realized there was a real stigma towards environment and what have you. And that if we were going to change things, we had to bring influencers in from various places. And you don't do that through affordable housing. Mm. The other thing I looked at is this area did not need affordable housing. We were in an area that was depressed. Uh, This 40,000 acres could not cover their own uh, uh, bills for services. Uh, so we were a detriment to Fulton County. Mm. Um, and so the understanding is that, that we needed executive housing to balance the tax base. So it, it's popular today to talk about uh, affordable housing because the stories that hit the press are those places where workforce housing uh, is displaced. Uh, what we're not talking about enough is the communities across the United States where the executive housing has disappeared and services have have to been cut to the very bone or those local jurisdictions have gone bankrupt because they have not kept an equal balance of housing on both sides. If you look at what's happened to rural America and the anger uh, uh, that's coming, uh, that's the big issue. Uh, we have uh, created places with only affordable housing. Mm. And so this is a, a, another thing that we ha- have to look at both sides of the coin. Uh, and we're a good example of that. Uh, so in the 40,000 acres, uh, we were able to convince the state legislature that we could have independence of our own city because Serenby's tax base that we projected forward. So... Today, we have disturbed 80 acres that's tax-producing in a 40,000-acre city, and we represent 50% of the tax base. Wow. So this allows farmers to stay on their farmland at a reasonable tax base. This allows for affordable housing in the area, and the leadership from our community has stood up an incredible charter school for the greater area, 500 kids attending that school. Uh, the majority of them come from low-income housing. 
uh, and it's a real model. Um, if you look at uh, CBS Sunday Morning, Google that Chattahoochee Hills oh, Charter School. I saw school. it live. <laughs> you saw the school. Well, I saw. I saw your your special. Oh, on, on that. you, yeah. So you see, we really and and there's where health. Mm. These, you know, we we built cottages for the classrooms in the woods. Kids spend a third of every day in nature. Oh, I love that. And we have the lowest uh, reported absentee due to health mm. of any school in the state. And so this is a good example. There are some simple solutions out there that aren't that hard, but we are in such ruts of how we do things yes. that, that we're missing these solutions. Have you seen people from these these summits that you have here, have you seen this duplicated? I think the farmers are the real heroes too, you know? Like how, have you seen it, um, have you seen it pop up elsewhere? Well, the thing is, is you do not see replicas, but you see principles sure. applied in yeah. various areas. So you look at the number of developers putting farms in. You look at the number of places that are now doing geothermal and uh, not allowing lawns, and they're, they're taking pieces of it. The idea of putting uh, blueberry bushes, your, your crosswalks, uh, uh, we're really influencing uh, development around, uh, around the country and, and, and even some people that haven't been here. Uh, the other key thing is universities are really showing up. And so this is some of the your future planners. Texas uh, A&M has the connection here, don't Texas they? Texas A&M, they have had two semesters where they bring the professor and students for a complete 12 weeks where they live on campus. Wow. Uh, so it's a semester away program. Uh, we are uh, working now with the University of Georgia to create a program where students from anywhere can apply as long as their host uh, university uh, accepts the, the, the curriculum that they're setting. Uh, and we hope that leads to uh, an actual dorms uh, that we're going to build uh, so that university students from anywhere in the world could come. Uh, it's an opportunity for corporations. Bosch had their experience center here for five years. Uh, and so a good example, they had, they're in 36 countries. Uh, this could be a scholarship program they create for all their communities to where kids in those communities could apply to spend a semester here mm. on environmental education. And this may be a meta question, but I'm thinking about, I know you have daughters, I know you have grandchildren, and your grandchildren, are they growing up on the property? They are. What is it like to watch them grow up in this community that must have been different from your daughters who grew up in the city? It is such a reward. I mean, that, 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 that is, is, is my, that's uh, your legacy, you know? Oh, a absolutely. And, you know, we, we, if you have children, you start looking at the world through a different lens. And it was the weekends here in the country. Uh, our girls were uh, three, five, and seven when we first purchased the land. They were six, eight, and 10 when we moved here. And that was just following my gut and my heart as to what I thought was necessary for them. Did your wife freak out? Like, where are they going to go to school? <laughs> well, they were going to Woodward and they continued to go to yeah, Woodward. So, that one's easy. you know, yeah. we're, we're on the edge of the city. So yeah. we didn't, you know, we're not in, in, in nowhere. Right. That's the beauty. We didn't, we didn't have to change our doctors, our hair stylists. We didn't. We didn't change anything except where we lived on a day-to-day -day basis. And we had a great house. We, we had the second largest lot in Ansley Park on a hill. We had an acre in Ansley. And anyone who that's huge. sees acres, that just, you know, that, that, that's Nobody's huge. Nobody's got a full M acre. Most of them are about a quarter acre, you know, yeah, if, if yeah. that and some smaller. And so we, you know, it was ideal, as ideal as you could have in the city. And we loved it. And it, we, we just changed. And so after we'd lived here full time for about six months at dinner one night, I asked the girls if they were happy we made that change because there was changes. And, <coughs> excuse me. I expected them to say, oh, yeah, we have bunnies. We have a horse. And they looked at each other. And Garnier, our oldest, looked at me and she said, the freedom, Dad. And I said, what do you mean the freedom? And she said, well, we had that big yard in Ansley fenced, but we always knew you were looking out the window at us, mm -hmm. and we could never ride our bicycles unless there was an adult with us on along the sidewalks. And she says, when we moved out here, we became free. 
And <clears throat> I had no idea that I was that uptight about them. Or How that can you not they be? Were, You're in the city. Yeah, or that they were aware of it. Yeah. And so uh, so that, that was about 11 years after that. Richard Louvre wrote the book, Last Child in the Woods. And I don't know if you're familiar with I'm that, not. but uh, this from that book is a medical term that derived of nature deficit disorder. And it's children's brains really are not developing. There's a piece of it that's that you think of as common sense because they live in such structured, built and social environments that they never have the opportunity to develop. Uh, and uh, so I, I sent Rich a note and said, thank you for giving voice mm. to what we intuitively knew 11, 12 years before that. Uh, I said, all of our friends in the city thought we were nuts. Now yeah. I can just send them your book and they can see that we were, we, we really understood something. I think one of the best examples is a big picture of a group of kids that are out running of various ages. And they, they cross a stream with, you know, a couple inches of water. Not a big deal if you hit it, but there's rocks in it. And all the bigger kids know how to hit the rocks and get across to the other side and off they go. And this picture zeroes in on about a three-year-old. And you can see he hasn't crossed the stream yet. And he's standing there looking at the rocks and trying to figure out if his legs are long enough to hit those places to keep going. And that's the kind of brain development that... Uh, doesn't happen today because very few kids are in a natural environment. And mm -hmm. if they are, there's an adult that picks them up and puts them on the other side of the stream. And so we're depriving our young people of that opportunity. And this is why you hear a lot of professors talking about the smart kids arriving at college that can't figure out simple things. Yeah, that's true. And this is where uh, nature deficit disorder came into being. This is hitting a little bit close to home because I live right in the city. I live in Old Fourth Ward, so I live <laughs> right on the Atlanta Beltline. And my kids, we have a little backyard. We have a little front yard. We have a garage. We have a gate. You know, so for there, that's a big, big deal. <laughs> there, there aren't a lot of it. Um, but I would not let them for a moment out of my sight. Um, even though it is cleaned up a lot, you know, and, and the one thing that I miss more than anything is the chance for them to run and be free and to not have us watching them. And I took my kids, they're four and seven, and I took my kids to a photo shoot and it was at a blueberry farm and um, in Lawrenceville and they had a whole thing of wildflowers and they could not be still. They were so happy to just run so I get that. I believe that, too. It must be amazing to watch your grandkids be able to be free. Well, it's it's incredible. And, and it was the best decision we ever made. And our girls, anyone who knows them, talks about how self-assured they are. I mean, they were, they were leaders in both high school and college. Uh, that, that foundation we gave them by moving here and giving them that connection to nature and that freedom that I did not realize we were depriving them of at the time. Uh, and now they have all chosen to come back and live here to raise their children and to see my grandchildren and all the kids here. And you know, we, we talk many times about the free range kids. Uh, and it's probably one of the big things people notice is these kids Running around without any obvious parents, yeah. Uh, the nature trails, the things they can do, and so I, I think one of the big things we, we we need to do is 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 look at uh, the two bookends of our society, and now as we're dealing with motto our our community on health uh, and wellness, we really looked at Scandinavia a lot, uh, where intergenerational living is very common in the programming. Uh, in America, we tend to cage both our children and our elders, um, and that's one thing I think we have to have to change. Uh, you know, so I, I'm all for free-range kids and uncaged elders. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's completely my, different. My parents are caged. They are caged. I think they're self-imposed mm -hmm. caged. Well, they don't want to leave anymore, and that I think is because it, they don't have access to something, a, a, a healthier environment. Well, you look at the walk. I mean, this is all very convenient for everyone to walk. They, you know, uh, they can sit on their front porch and 
people of all ages come by to wave and just say hello, and what a difference that makes uh, for an elderly person. That maybe, especially, they lose their driver's license yeah. or they're homebound for health reasons. To have a bunch of kids running by your front door all the time—that's the way it used to be, uh, and it, it 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 lifts our spirits. Tell me about the art in the community. Your whole face just lit up. <laughs> well, so so you see, we you know the, the basis here is 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 preservation of land. So seventy percent is is going to be preserved, and then the density creates the the density. So that's the basic underlying of the zoning. But we realized there were four other pillars if we wanted really a vital lifestyle, and that's arts, agriculture, health, and education. And art is an important piece. It has been through uh, uh, generations, through uh, centuries, uh, but we seem to not be funding it, not giving it the uh, respect or the importance that it needs. Um, and so we wanted to develop uh, areas for artists, and we wanted to put policy in place. So we created the Serenby Institute for Art and Environment, and there is a 1% transfer fee for every house that's sold or resold in the future. So this gives a permanent annual funding for our arts programming. Um, this allowed us to... Uh, do some early things. Our artist in residence program was the first program. We borrowed people's carriage houses, guest rooms. Uh, now we have a 40-acre campus that we're developing for our visiting artists. Wow. Uh, because we had those funds, uh, we were able to launch the Playhouse, and now Serenby Playhouse is... The Playhouse is like, I, I've never been there, but people rave about it. It's well. The the uh, uh, playbill out of New York said we were one of the twenty important regional theaters in the United States today. You must be so proud. And then, because of our institute, when the contemporary dance group left the Atlanta Ballet two years ago, we were able to catch them so that the Metro Atlanta did not lose them. And so now we have Terminus, which is the contemporary dance. So, um, and then plus we have smaller. So those are each now large enough that they are their own uh, divisions under the umbrella of the Institute. It's a little bit like Woodruff Arts Center and mm -hmm. has the divisions under it. And then we also have other groups dealing with music and film and things that might emerge to, uh, to major divisions in themselves. So that's growing. In fact, the 2020 uh, budget is $3.5 million. Wow. Uh, funding the arts. Uh, a lot, especially the Playhouse and Terminus, a lot of their tickets. That's unheard of, uh, isn't it? Unheard of. Uh, and yeah. it's sustainable because uh, a lot of their budget comes from ticket sales and classes. So it's earned income. It isn't always with their handout. Mm -hmm. and, and that's part of what sustainability is. If, there, if there's a foundation uh, of money somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, then you inspire them to go out and do these things. They're not always having to worry about whether they're going to survive for the next year. That base is there, and it allows creativity uh, and entrepreneurship within the arts. That's got to be amazing to be able to have that kind of well-rounded offering here. Do people never leave? I mean, are there some people that just stay on property? You, you know, we have this incredible pool and the arts and all. And, and I know of three families last year that shared with me that when they were planning their summer vacation, they couldn't figure out any place to go that they would like better <laughs> than staying home. Do you get depressed, you know, like driving off a lot of therapy? I, I don't drive off that much, you know. Exactly. See? Uh, but, you know, but Atlanta's right there. So I don't miss anything yeah. that, that I want. But uh, and, and you see, like, the, the Playhouse, only 1% of our ticket sales come from the zip code. Uh, people are coming in from all over. In fact, we have an amazing number of season ticket holders outside the state. Mm. Wow. Isn't that something? But you do have a lot of programming for holidays and for season and for children and for families here. If you go to a our webpage, we have things every week. Go yoga. Week. 
I will go, never try you know, goat go, yoga, but I've been to a yoga retreat here. Oh, well then try the aerial. Now, she, you know, the, oh. the, the yoga studio, now that they've moved into their new space in the One Motto building, they have aerial yoga, and that is an incredible hit. A lot yeah. of people are coming. So I will do that, but not goat yoga. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can watch. <laughs> I have a girlfriend that is desperate because she comes down here from Roswell mm-hmm. to do goat yoga, and she's like, you're going with me. And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'll go for any other reason, but uh, she's she's convinced I'll try it. But um, but I love what you're doing. And and one thing I was thinking about because I think are there problems to solve? And you found a problem that has been solved here. Where do you go from here? Well, we have a lot of things to do. Yeah, what's next? You know, when I think about where we were 20 years ago, is 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 we were just thinking about saving this and. Uh, <clears throat> Luckily, a dear friend was Ray Anderson. Uh, people in the environmental movement would know him as he founded Interface Carpet, which brought carpet squares to America. And then after reading Paul Hawkins' book in the 90s, uh, he uh, changed his company to be an environmental footprint for 30 years. Uh, and uh, w- when the White House created the Council on the Environment in the early 90s or mid-90s, he was the first chairman of that. Now, he's a dear friend. His stepson's godfathered our 31-year-old. So we knew Ray through all this. And so at dinner one night when I was concerned, I said, Ray, you know the smart people. Who who, who could come help us? Who's, who's developing responsibly? And, of course, there were no developers doing this kind of responsible development to this degree. But he asked the Rocky Mountain Institute out of Colorado. Uh, to help. And so Ray and the Rocky Mountain Institute convened 23 thought leaders here in September of 2000. Now, this is back when there were only a few voices talking about the environment. Yeah. Uh, today, while there's still a lot to be done, we at least have a roadmap and we have a pretty good idea what needs to be done and what the problems are. Uh, today, I think we're at the same place with health that we were 20 years ago with environment. We know we have to do something. We know we can't continue. How can you contribute here beyond well, what has been done we, already? We are we are really at the forefront of this. Um, we are, as a society, we're sicker than we've ever been. Uh, antidepressants increase uh, fourfold each decade. Uh, for the first time in the last two years, our lifespan has become shorter rather than longer, and that that trend has has turned. Um, at the current rate, uh, through some of the CDC figures, uh, if we don't reverse the amount of money we're spending by 2035, it will be 50 percent of our GDP towards health. Uh, this is a train wreck that a lot of people are talking about, and there's going to be something different. Um, we, we feel, well, we know we're at the forefront. Uh, two years ago, the Global Wellness Summit that looks at this internationally uh, gave us the International Award in Innovation for Built Environment and what we're doing here. Uh, very few people here use their insurance, but... Everyone feels they have to have it, and I call the our current insurance that's extortion. Mm. Uh, and so, if you have people doing health, where you know where's that going to change? Um, how's our how are people going to take start taking control of their own responsibility for their health? Uh, we should own our own health records instead of these medical institutions. Owning I agree with them. that. Uh, we should be looking. Uh, we should be making it. Uh, a lot better for natural. Uh, we, we have a medicinal garden that was planted, planned by the University of Georgia. We're teaching people how to harvest their front yard rather than run to the pharmaceutical company. Um, and so we are, we're in a very broken society as we deal with our health. Uh, and, and you just look, we're, we're getting sicker and more depressed and starting to die younger. So there's something seriously wrong. Mm. Um, I think a lot of it comes from the built environment, and that's the piece that we're demonstrating and showing it it can happen. And, and we're an option for people that want to change their lives. Serenby and places like Serenby, or you start looking. Uh, 
the fact that we do not have lawns that have to be chemicalized, I think, deals a lot with the asthma issue and probably cancer. You know, we, we, we live in... That is fascinating, yeah. We live in a chemical society. Yeah. We, we uh, you know, almost all houses have lawns. Um, you, you have to chemicalize it to keep the weeds down and make it look like it does. Uh, and we're in a tendency to want things to bloom rather than edible things. We're, we're, we're putting things that bloom. Uh, and then we put chemical fertilizers on that to make them grow more. Uh, and then pretty soon the bugs started coming out. I was wondering how you guys handle bugs here. Well, we are in Georgia, so (laughs) the mosquitoes are terrible. It's amazing. You walk by our streams, puddles of water, more people call me and ask me what we do to prevent the mosquitoes and the pesty bugs. Yeah. The, you know, the, our ecosystem works pretty well if we leave it alone. Mm. But if you start putting these chemicalized things, the natural predators of those pesty bugs disappear. They're going to get out. And so we're left with these pesty bugs that, that are overpopulated then, such as mosquitoes. Uh, and then, then we wonder what's wrong. Um, you know, when we lived in Ansley Park, it drove me crazy. At least twice a year, I came home, and there was a sign in my neighbor's yard, do not walk on the lawn for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. My cats could never read that across the lawn, <laughs> into the house, onto the sofas. Um, but, you know, how does that disappear for 24 hours? So, so you know it's dangerous enough that they have to post these signs. And then we wonder why we have cancer and asthma and depression. We need to wake up as a society and as buyers start demanding different places that we're going to live and that we're going to raise our children. What are some ways? What are some ways that people can help take steps for a healthier life? Um, well, let's just talk about the built environment, for instance, uh, wherever you live. Uh, this was a tour I had about um, uh, several months ago, and I was talking about this. And there was this 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 woman, um, uh, and after I was talking about this, I thought she was ill because she kind of got white, and she, I could tell she'd lost focus. And I said, are you all right? She said, yes. She said, I've just been thinking. We live on a cul-de-sac with about 20 houses, and our whole bigger community, there's a big prize on the yard of the year. Mm. Tons of chemicals. And we pride ourselves that someone on our cul-de-sac always wins. And I have been sitting here thinking about each house, and there has been a cancer in almost every house mm. on our cul-de-sac. And she says, "I'm." She says, "You have just scared me to death." She says, "What you just said makes so much sense," and I'm just applying that to my own neighborhood. So, one thing is get your neighborhood together and decide that that, that this is a problem, and you're going to change what you're doing. Uh, and everybody thinks, oh, my God, what's the neighborhood going to look like without lawns? It's amazing how few people notice we don't have lawns. Mm, I didn't notice. See? Yeah. I, I, I love it. I bring developers through. I, I, I do tours of landscapers. and They're close. The, the, um, yeah. the front porches are close to the road. That's right. Yeah. And, and so it, um, and, and many times we've walked 40 minutes through the community talking about the very aspects. And I'll say, now, what's one of the biggest things you notice that's different about most communities? And they talk about the granite curves, the street lights, the width, uh, the, the car, all sorts of things. And, and, and it's, it's rare, maybe 10% of the time that people notice there are no lawns. Wow. And they all look surprised when I tell them, oh, there's no lawn. So, mm. so j- just start looking about where you live. That, that, that's a huge thing. Um, start, um, uh, using your, your, your local farmer's market, really think about the food you're putting on the table and what that food is and where it's come uh, from and where it's coming from, yeah. it, you know, or, organic from Argentina, I don't think, you know, makes sense. I, I, I would rather have locally grown from uh, a region around here. Uh, so support, 
local farmers, local food. Understand that. Uh, you know, meat. Uh, uh, part of the problem with meat is, is is all the steroids and things that is put into yeah. it. Where if you're getting local meat, local chicken, grass fed, uh, grass fed, you look at just the color of of, of a chicken in a grocery store that comes from grass fed and comes from a chicken farm and the color of it is very different. Yeah. You look at a grass-fed egg versus a regular egg. The the colors are very different. So start being aware of of the food you're putting on the table and what you're doing. Start thinking about your daily habits of 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 of, of where you're where you're walking. When can you walk? Where can you walk to places? versus constantly worried about convenience. Mm. Uh, that's a huge piece is the physical activity. Here at Serenby, we have winding streets, but we have a path grid. So generally, you can get everyone faster by foot than you can by car. That's an intentional... Is that by design, yeah. That is intentional design. Wow. Uh, and, and you find we really don't have that much problem. So, uh, someone shared that they had been on diets for 30 years and finally gave it up about five years before moving here. Hadn't thought about diet, but suddenly they had lost 20 pounds. And it's purely the lifestyle, both of the food available <laughs> and the fact that once you park your car, you're, you're walking to everything here. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that, that's a real lifestyle. So there's, there's a lot of simple things in what we're doing. Um, I think the waking, the awareness part, it's things like thinking about lawns that I would have never thought about, even though it is right in front of my face, you know? Um, so I thank you for that. <laughs> I, I think it's really helpful because I think people are starting to understand that what they eat and what's around them is really affecting their health. I think people are starting to connect that their sickness or the antidepressants are because of some of the things that are not really their fault, just not the awareness of a better way. And now I think it's becoming more in fashion to um, to have sustainable, better energy. Do you guys have solar panels here? Or is it electricity? So, how, how do you guys... Well, you've touched another great thing. So, you know, uh, it, it's another one of those issues where everyone understands the issue, but they come in at the wrong place on it. So when you're talking about things like solar, we really need to talk about reducing your demand of energy. Mm. Tell me more. And so... Uh, Every house here has to be certified. Uh, most people know about LEED certification. We use Earthcraft, which is out of That's the, the South Face. Well, I like it. It's local. It, 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 it's out of uh, Atlanta, and it's in the Southeast. I really like it because they have a minimum of three inspections. So I know when that Sounds house expensive. is completed— <laughs> um, and, and, and so I, I, I love you. I, I love your perceptions because you're 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 exactly where we are as a society in 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 talking about the expense. So I, I, I want to talk a little bit Please. more about that. So if you if you reduce the demand in in building a well built house, that reduces your energy demand by about thirty to thirty five percent. Then if you put geothermal in, which is a very natural system of using the temperature uh, from the uh, earth uh, to heat and cool your house, that reduces your HVAC costs by 50% or about 35% of your overall energy demand. The other thing about geothermal is it's silent. So you don't have those air compressors going which a lot of things I think disturbs our nervous system is mm. the noise of, mm. of a lot of these things. And, and, and the compressors are one of those things in our air conditioning. So if you have reduced your energy demand by 65 to 70%, then solar becomes very affordable. And the next step to put a, a solar on a non-energy efficient house doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, mm. it's very costly. Uh, and this is why the, the payback. So most people, when they talk about things, it is more expensive to build a good house. Um, it's a little more expensive to put solar on. Um, but a good example is the demonstration house we built with Bosch. Uh, and so it was uh, 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 certified. 
it was geothermal. And then on a 1,800 square foot house, they were able to put a third of the solar. So it cost a third to actually put solar to run the house. You can watch the meter running backwards. Uh, it was more expensive. When we sold it, they got a 75 or 80% mortgage. So their monthly mortgage bill was more expensive than it would be on a comparable house somewhere that wasn't certified, wasn't geothermal, right. wasn't solar. But the increase in their mortgage was less than what their power bill would right. have been. Wow. So it's cash positive year one, month one. And so what happens is we are used to comparing silos to silos rather than overall things. Uh, and, and, and that's a problem that keeps us in these ruts of doing the same old thing because of this stereotype that it's more expensive. Mm. And actually, it's not. It is more expensive to build, but it, it's less cash flow every month right. out of the family pocket. Those are the kind of things we're not looking at. And then if you reduce your health costs by having an mm. environmentally built house, Huge. no asthma, just, just think of what that starts doing, quality of life as well as actual medical bills. So in, in America, we are really not applying costs of things, the true cost of everything. And so that's why we're having troubles measuring and we don't do a lot of things because we perceive it as being too expensive. Yeah, I think when you put it into context like that, it makes a whole lot of sense. And it sounds so idyllic here. And it makes me sad that I don't know that I could live here. You know, like, can I? But if I could take certain steps to get better and to bring this awareness to people, that's how it starts. I suspect you're an aware enough person and you have children that you'll do anything for. Mm -hmm. And as you become aware of these issues, there's things that you haven't noticed that will probably really start bothering you yeah. when you think about how it's affecting your kids. Uh, and that's, that's where we're going to change. The, the, the public has to start it, 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 with our, what we, what yeah. we, what we, where we're willing, what we're willing to put up with as buyers, whether it's home, whether it's what our food, or what, what, where are we? And so what Serenby and places like Serenby, we're making people aware of these differences. Mm. And I've had a lot of people come back and say, you know, I, I, I hate you. And I said, why? And they said, you've made me aware. Yes. And, and now some of these little things I didn't you think about are it. driving me crazy, <laughs> you know, whether it's, you know, this woman said, I, I, you know, I never really realized how irritated I was at the compressor outside our bedroom window. And now that you talked about it, she says... <laughs> now it's louder than ever. <laughs> she says, it's just driving me crazy. It's, it's like nails going down, a, right. you know. And so I think there's a lot... And so if there's anything, we need to wake up as a society yes. because we cannot continue in this path. It's just, it's, it's just that serious. That's why I was so interested and thankful to have some time with you because I think it is an important change that needs to be made. How do people find you? Uh, we can go to our webpage at www.serenbee.com. S-E-R-E-N-B-E. -E. And it's it, tell me where the name came from. Well, it was when we came out here, uh, and you tend to name your land, and uh, w when we slowed down to simply be, we found the serenity we had been searching mm. for. That's beautiful. You know, we, we, we tend to go faster and faster searching. And the reality is, if we just slow down, chances are it's right there. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Steve. You are blazing a trail. I'm so thankful for the example that you're setting and the time you spent with me and for my audience and can't wait to see what's next for you. Well, I'm looking forward to you bringing your children back and spending wait. some time in nature and on some of our trails. <laughs> they will love it. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you. Steve Nigren of Serenby, I can't thank you enough for introducing a new way to change our perspectives for a healthier life. And I'm so grateful for someone like you to inspire a movement as you have. 
All of Saren B's and Steve's information is in the show notes. And as for Little Left of Center, these podcasts are available not only on your favorite listening app, but also on Decatur FM and on Salesforce Radio. So text me your feedback at 470-242-6311. And if you haven't subscribed yet to my podcast, do it. Please leave a five-star review. And most of all, share this episode with a friend or five. Culture changing is really a movement, but only works when the ideas are shared. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.